Good morning, my name is Ryan Chase, and I have the privilege of serving as the senior pastor here at Emmaus Road Church, and I too want to welcome you in Jesus' name to this gathering. And if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to the letter of James. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 1, and if you need a landmark, the letter of James comes right after the the book of Hebrews, so that's a helpful way to find James, that big book of Hebrews, then comes the letter of James. Do you ever feel like there's a disconnect for you between your faith and your life? For some of you, that that might mean you frequently feel like a hypocrite because you know the way that you are living right now does not match what you say you believe as a Christian. But for others of you, maybe it's not quite so severe. You are sincere in your faith, but what you believe, your theology, your doctrine, that that feels lofty, transcendent, and rather out of touch from the day-to-day realities of your life, the mundane tasks that you spend most of your time on, like maybe changing diapers and folding laundry or punching the clock and making widgets? Or do you feel frustrated by your immaturity? In the faith. I think that's common among Christians to lament our own lack of progress. You just have this sense I ought to be further along in my faith than I am right now. Or is there some particular area of weakness that you've struggled with? Maybe for years your faith is genuine, you love the Lord, you trust in Jesus, you've made progress in many areas, but you still struggle with outbursts of anger or nuisance lust, or prayerlessness, or a sharp tongue. Maybe you can't relate to any of that. Maybe you've learned to be content with God's developmental process in your life, and you can look back on all the highs and the lows in your life through the eyes of faith and trace God's gracious hand, and yet you do earnestly desire to grow even more and more in your faith. Whoever you are, Wherever you are, I'm excited to introduce you to the letter of James this morning where we plan to spend the next five months from now to the end of June, Lord willing, beginning with James 1, verse 1. And if you are physically able, I want to invite you to stand with me out of our reverence for God and His Word as I read. This is God's very Word. James, a servant of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And you have spoken to us. The secret things belong to you, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children so that we might know you and walk in your ways. And so we thank you for revelation, for revelation here in the opening verse of the letter of James, and we pray that you would speak to us and commune with us and reveal yourself to us here and through this letter in the coming months for your glory and for our joy. Amen. You may be seated. 
It was my aim this morning to motivate you to listen attentively, to listen expectantly as God addresses us as a church family at this particular time through the letter of James. I want to motivate you to pay attention to the message of the letter of James. Of course, if you're a Christian, you already take God at his word. You have a high view of his word. You don't need much encouragement or incentive at all to pay attention to God's word. You take it by faith that James is authoritative in your life because it's, it's scripture. And while James has been one of the most contested books in the New Testament, maybe you're aware Martin Luther notoriously called this an epistle of straw. <laughs> My aim this morning is not to spend time arguing that James belongs in the canon of Scripture. I believe it does. Maybe we'll follow up with a blog post or a podcast on that. My aim, rather, is to pique your eager expectation to receive timely and transformational truth from God as we work diligently through this letter together. This book at this particular time for this church. Through the letter of James, the Spirit of God means to bridge that gap between your head and your hands, to remedy any disconnect that exists between your faith and your works. The letter of James contains practical wisdom and grace from God to help you live out your faith and to make progress toward fullness and maturity in Christ. And James 1, verse 1 should get your attention and heighten your expectation for all of that. First, consider God's servant. The very first thing we learn in this letter is who the author is. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing is, there's not a lot of identifying information to go off of in that introduction. Who is James? Or rather, which James is this? There are at least four different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament, and it's easy to rule out half of them. A disciple named Judas had a father named James, but he's only mentioned so that everybody's clear, this Judas, the son of James, is not that Judas, Judas Iscariot. It's not likely that Judas, the son of James, had a dad who wrote an authoritative letter received as scripture by the church. There was another disciple named James, James the son of Alphaeus, but he's a relatively minor figure. He's only mentioned really in lists of the 12 disciples in Mark and Matthew and Luke, and he was probably too unknown and unfamiliar to the broader church to write an authoritative letter like this. James, the son of Zebedee, though, he seems like a strong possibility at first because he was by far the more well-known of the two Jameses who were disciples of Jesus. This James was one of the first disciples that Jesus called early in his ministry. He was a member of Jesus' inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, the ones that Jesus famously dubbed the sons of thunder. And James's brother, John, he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. So this James was well known. However, he was also one of the first to die for his faith in Christ. As Luke tells us in Acts 12, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest 
Peter also. So that leaves James, the brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus had a brother named James because Matthew and Mark tell us that in their Gospels. And Paul lists that James among the apostles when he describes his first steps after his conversion. He tells his story in Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So here Paul mentions James, the brother of Jesus, as one who was among the apostles and a pretty significant one, one that he spent time with when he visited Jerusalem after his conversion. He had become a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem. And this James had the authority and the recognition needed to author a letter like this and to be able to get away with introducing himself simply as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that makes his introduction all the more striking. Consider what he doesn't say. This would be the perfect opportunity to name drop, to just mention the fact that you were a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But James does not mention his biological relationship to Jesus. That connection provided no merit, no privileged status, no special authority or spiritual standing in the church to James. What mattered for James and what matters for you is relating to Jesus by faith. We know from the gospel accounts that James and his other brothers did not initially believe that their brother Jesus was the Messiah. Mark tells us that Jesus' own family was embarrassed and thought he was crazy, Mark 3, 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's Jesus' own family in response to Jesus, preaching and teaching and healing the sick. John describes another time when Jesus' brothers advised Jesus they thought he should be doing more to promote himself. So first they try to seize him and bring him home. Then they kind of encourage him to do more to make himself known. Maybe they're trying some reverse psychology here. What matters is John exposes the root of their misguided motives when he writes in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. That's meant to get our attention. Not even his brothers believed in him. So consider that bio biography, that history for James, and then consider again James 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not James, the brother of Jesus. No, James, a servant. Literally, a slave of Jesus. That, that's the better translation of the Greek word doulos. The author of this letter is what it means for us. He is a trusted guide when it comes to the transforming power of God's grace because he himself is an exhibit of that grace. He speaks from personal experience when he writes in James 4, verse 6, what one commentator says, the rhetorical high point of the whole letter, but he gives more grace. 
He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James pens that, not as someone seated up on a lofty pedestal, but as a humble recipient of that grace. James's biological relationship to Jesus makes it especially remarkable when we consider the way that James speaks of Jesus in this letter. When he calls Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, he's identifying his biological half-brother as the Christ, which is not a name, that's a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew title Messiah, the anointed one of God. And when he calls Jesus Lord, it's not just respect he's showing. He is saying he is the rightful king of the world, the heir of David's throne. He puts Jesus on the same plane as God himself when he calls him in chapter 2, verse 1, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You who have brothers, <laughs> think what it would take for you to speak that way of your own brother. The Lord of glory. Glory is a divine attribute. God himself, if you look for, where else is a phrase like that used in scripture? God is called the king of glory in Psalm 24.10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Like a good Jew, James is passionate about the oneness of God. He writes in chapter 4, verse 12, and talks about this in chapter 2, verse 19. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And yet James clearly identifies Jesus as that judge when he writes at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What did it take for this half-brother of Jesus to become convinced Jesus is God and Lord and judge and the king of glory? We don't know the details of James's conversion, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus rose from the dead, first he appeared to Peter, then he appeared to the 12, and then he showed himself to a crowd of 500 people at one time, which is corroborating evidence because 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. In verse 7, Paul says, then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to James. He had a unique relationship with James and then to all the apostles. By God's grace, James went from skeptic to servant of God. And that phrase, when he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it not only indicates his humble submission to Jesus as Lord, but it also and primarily points to James's authority as an apostle. That phrase, servant of God, that's a common designation in the Old Testament for two men in particular, Moses and David, who are both kind of a big deal. In fact, every time the Old Testament refers to Moses as the servant of God, it's always to underscore the authority of the law that Moses gave. Here, I'll give you one example, Daniel chapter 9, verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice, and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. 
Moses, the servant of God. Those curses have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against them. So notice in parallel there, the voice of God and the law of Moses. Those two things are synonymous because Moses was the servant of God. He spoke on behalf of God. Likewise, God calls King David, my servant, over 20 times in the Old Testament. So when James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is claiming apostolic authority to address God's people on behalf of God. He's saying, what I'm about to write to you, these are not my thoughts, my opinions. I'm speaking to you as a representative, as an ambassador. And that's why you should pay attention to the letter of James. And one more thing. While James does not make any mention of his blood relationship to Jesus, He does refer to his audience. This is his favorite phrase to refer to the recipients of this letter as my brothers and even my beloved brothers over 11 times. That's incredible. James, it appears, finally came to understand what Jesus meant in Luke 8 when Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's how James thinks now. What matters the most is responding to Jesus in faith. Are you trusting and obeying Jesus? If so, then Jesus and James would call you my brothers, my sisters, my beloved brothers and sisters. Second, consider the recipients of this letter, God's people. In verse 1, James identifies his audience with this brief phrase packed with meaning to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What does that mean? We have to know the story to make sense of that the same way you'd have to be familiar with the Lord of the Rings, to know who the nine members of the fellowship are. The nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes, one for each of the sons of Jacob. But because of King Solomon's disobedience and his idolatry, God judged the nation by dividing the kingdom in two. Judah was the kingdom in the south, Israel was the kingdom in the north, and the Assyrians would later sweep in and carry the kingdom of Israel into exile. Later, the Babylonians would come and carry away those from Judah into exile. James refers to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And if you're reading the ESV, you notice dispersion is capitalized there as a proper noun. The Greek word is diaspora. Maybe you've heard that. Oftentimes, people speak of the diaspora, referring to the dispersion of the Jewish people outside the land of Israel. That began all the way back with the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles, 8th and the 6th centuries B.C. But from that time on, the prophets in the Old Testament, big prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all began to foretell that there would be a day when God would gather in his scattered, dispersed people. Here's one, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 22. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take 
the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. So when we get to the New Testament, that expectation of the fulfillment of those prophecies of gathering in the scattered, the dispersed people of God, the expectation that that's about to be fulfilled is heightened when one of the first things Jesus does is call 12 disciples. That's significant. It's pointing to Jesus as the one king who would rule them all. The one king who would gather into one the scattered people of God and reestablish the nation of Israel. And Jesus makes this clear that that's exactly what he was doing when he says in Matthew 19, 28, to his disciples, truly I say to you in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, because he's the one king, Ezekiel foretold, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This continues to be a way that God speaks of his people. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 7, John has a vision of the Christian church and it's presented as the 12 tribes of Israel. First, he hears the number of God's elect described as a symbolic number. You're probably familiar with this. It's a symbolic number, 144,000 or 12,000 from each of 12 tribes. He hears that number, but then he turns and he looks when he looks with his eyes, Revelation 7, 9 says, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in Revelation 21, John sees the church presented as the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So what does all of that mean? I think Doug Moo is helpful and correct when he says, by calling his readers the 12 tribes then, James claims that they constitute the true people of God in the last days. The church of Jesus Christ, this is God's gathered in people. James was most likely writing to Jewish Christians who had been scattered by a persecution that broke out in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. Acts eleven nineteen tells us, more about that, but the letter of James is, here's the, the main point, this is for the entire Christian church. And we can be sure James himself believed this message that he addressed to particular Jewish Christians scattered by persecution is meant for Christians all over, including you today. Because in Acts 15, James got up and spoke at the foundational Jerusalem council. You see, after Paul's very first missionary journey throughout the Roman Empire, all these Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus. 
which was exciting, but it provoked a controversy back in Jerusalem where some were arguing, Luke tells us, Acts 15, 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How can one be saved? You have to become Jewish. So the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem got together at a council to discuss that and debate that and decide that matter. First, Peter spoke. Acts 15, 11 tells us, Peter gets up and says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Next, Paul and Barnabas spoke. They recounted the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles as proof God is at work in all the world now, among people who have not been circumcised according to the custom of Moses. And then James, the brother of the Lord, gets up and he speaks and he quotes the prophet Amos in Acts 15, 15 through 18. James says, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. It was James who made the connection. This was God's promise. When God promised that he would rebuild the tent of David, when, when God promised he would repair the ruins of Jerusalem, that he would gather the scattered tribes of Israel, that was a massive promise that included the Gentiles who are called by the name of Jesus. That was James's conviction. And if that was his conviction, then it's right for us to identify ourselves in his audience when he writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. We who are the true Israel of God, not by merit of our ethnicity, but because of our union with Christ through faith. That means this spirit-inspired message is for you. Finally, consider God's grace. Very end of his greeting, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. In Greek, just like in English, James uses just a single word to express greetings. On the one hand, there's nothing special about this. This is the most standard, basic letter greeting in the Greco-Roman world. Unbelievers started letters like this. Here's who's writing it. Here's who I'm writing to. Greetings. He uses that word. And the first thing that strikes us about this letter is how brief that greeting is compared to other New Testament letters. Peter begins his first letter, may the grace and peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It sounds much more Christian than James's. Or if you're familiar with Paul, you know how he starts his letters. Many of them, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, they all begin with this phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Or Galatians has an especially rich theological and doctrinal meditation on Christ who died for us in the greeting. James, by contrast, just begins with the word, hello, <laughs> hope you're well, greetings. But what a greeting this is because, you know this, the nature of a greeting is determined by who it comes from and what message it introduces. I'm sure 
you can relate to this. I, spam calls and spam texts are just out of control these days, aren't they? And scammers have found this way to call you. It used to be easy. You could recognize, like, where is this call coming from? I don't know anybody in, you know, Vermont. Now, it's, they, they come from local numbers. And so you think, oh, it might be somebody that I know. And somehow now, it's not just calling, it's a text. Like, hey, want to go golfing next week? Who is this? That, that hey from a strange number is not a particularly warm greeting. It just puts your guard up, right? Contrast that with a greeting that comes from a loved one, from a spouse or from a child who's away at college. If somebody, you pick up that call and they say, hi, this is so-and-so with the IRS. How are you? Greetings are informed by who it is who's giving the greeting. So James's greeting is significant because of who James is. As we've seen, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When spoken by a spirit-inspired apostle to the people of God, that word carries much more than some vague general greeting. And it establishes contact and communication for a purpose. It introduces a message. James has a message for his audience and a message for you. I want to share with you three themes to look for in our series through James. First, theology with calluses. James has been criticized, or you could say misunderstood, as a book lacking in theology. It's, it's true. If you search James for in-depth doctrinal treatments of a doctrine like the church or the Holy Spirit or the atonement, you won't find what you're used to in Paul or other New Testament authors. But that does not mean that James is not theological. James is an intensely practical book, which is one reason it's so well-loved by Christians in the church throughout history. The, the letter contains over 50 commands in just over 100 verses, which is a higher concentration of imperatives than any other book in the New Testament. James is concerned with action and with application, but everything that James says is rooted clearly grounded in the character of God and the word of God and the activity of God in the world. That, that is, James is theology applied. When we consider the style of James' letter, we shouldn't be surprised to find such a high concentration of application. James reads less like a letter and a lot more like a sermon. And the proper preaching is always applicational. It takes the truth of God's word and it applies it, you, like you apply a bandage or a coat of paint. You take truth and you apply it to life. You press it on. And James is relentless in pressing the truth of God into your life. This practical emphasis is reflected in James's extensive use of vivid and earthy illustrations, which is probably another reason this book is so popular among Christians. He, he talks of storm-tossed waves and scorched wildflowers and mirrors and a lifeless corpse and a vanishing mist and a patient farmer. James hits another level with his metaphors and illustrations when he gets to chapter 3 and starts to speak of sins of the tongue. He speaks of horses with bits and bridles and ships guided by small rudders through stormy seas and blazing forest fires caused by tiny sparks and Beasts and sea creatures tamed by man and springs of water and fig trees and grapevines. James is an earthy book concerned with living out 
heavenly realities here on earth. It is, to borrow a phrase, theology with calluses. Theology that comes out your fingertips. It doesn't stay up in your head as a nice devotional thought to get you through the day. It doesn't stay down in your heart as a warm sentiment to feel. It is truth to be lived out in God's world. In fact, everyone is always living out his or her theology. You can profess to believe one thing, but the way you live betrays what you actually believe. And James insists the way you live is the truest, most reliable indicator of your true beliefs. Theology must produce calluses or else it exists in your imagination alone. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James writes, chapter 1, verse 22. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, James 2, 17. James is concerned with living faith over dead faith, active faith over useless and ineffective faith, and that's why we're calling this series Faith That Works. James's message is also full of wisdom for life in negative world. His original audience was full of people who were acquainted with suffering and affliction and persecution. If, if they were Jewish Christians who had been scattered by that persecution in Jerusalem after Stephen's death, you can imagine how traumatic and bewildering an experience that must have been. To have your life turned upside down, to suddenly flee with whatever you can take with you, to find yourself in a new place, totally disoriented, trying to figure out how to survive, how to feed your family. James speaks to these scattered and dispersed people with pastoral care and wisdom. The first major theme he tackles is the testing of your faith in verse 3, which comes when you meet trials of various kinds. There's an author named Aaron Wren who's recently attempted to explain some of the deep divides we're seeing within evangelicalism in terms of a cultural shift to what he calls negative world. In positive world, in America before roughly 1994, the, the broader culture had primarily a positive view of Christianity. It was a positive thing to be known as a churchgoer. Christian moral norms were widely assumed, at least, within our culture. Wren says, neutral world was kind of that world between 94 and 2014 when society took more of a neutral stance toward Christianity. Being a Christian was not necessarily a social benefit, but it didn't hurt either. And some of Christianity's moral norms had some residual effects. And now, Wren suggests, we live in negative world. He writes, society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. That is a bewildering experience for many Christians alive today. It's not uncharted territory in church history, but it's new, especially for those of you old enough to remember life before the early 90s. The letter of James is full of wisdom and grace from God to help us navigate life in negative world. Like the original recipients of this letter, many of you have literally been 
scattered here. In the last four years, we've added members to our church who have come from states like Minnesota and California and Washington and New York. Something's happening in our culture today. And James has a powerful message for Christians who suddenly face unfamiliar trials and testing. What God is doing in the world, what he will do in the end is not at all jeopardized by the current cultural upheaval or the intensified opposition you may experience. James calls for steadfastness and provides the promise to make it so in your life. James 1, 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Last theme to expect in James, Christ for all of life. One of our values as a church, one which we share in common with all Sovereign Grace churches, is our gospel-centeredness. One of the major points of emphasis of the gospel-centered movement has been to define the gospel carefully and to articulate the gospel clearly. We just never want to take it for granted. We never want to assume. We don't, we don't want to just throw that word around without being clear. Christ died for our sins. That's the good news. That is the foundation and the center of everything. However, we find no such statement of the atonement or justification in the letter of James, which has made some Christians uncomfortable with this book, not quite sure what to do with it. Let me assure you, this does not mean James is not a gospel-centered book. In fact, I propose James is one of the books most needed at this moment in churches like ours that value gospel centrality, and here's why. Emphasizing the centrality of the gospel is vital, but it's also necessary to define the circumference or the perimeter. The, the gospel is the center of what? And the answer, according to James, is everything, all of life. Your trials and afflictions, no matter how big or small, chapter 1, chapter 5, your finances, your battle with besetting temptation and sin, your enjoyment of material blessings from God, your tongue, your conflict, your anger, your future, your commitments, all of it. And though James's purpose was not to explain the doctrine of atonement in detail, his letter is saturated with the words of Christ. More so than any other book in the New Testament outside of the Gospels, listen to Doug Moo again, James depends more than any other New Testament author on the teaching of Jesus. He weaves Jesus' teaching into the very fabric of his own instruction. Again and again, the closest parallels to James's wording will be found in the teaching of Jesus, especially as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, and I would add in the Sermon on the Mount. And the topics he addresses, as well as the particular slant he takes on these topics, mimics Jesus' own emphasis the author of the letter seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he can reflect them almost unconsciously. E even so, Christians reading it don't always catch, oh, he's, he's just quoting Jesus. He's applying Jesus to real life, to my life. James will help you press the teachings of Christ into the perimeter of life to all the nooks and crannies, to the furthest reaches of your 
life. So if theology and life ever seem disconnected for you, if you want to make progress in your faith toward maturity in Christ, let me urge you, listen attentively to the message of James and receive it with faith. And by God's grace, do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We love this book. We love the books and letters in this book. Thank you that you have spoken to us so we might know you. And it is with faith that we look forward to all that you mean to do in us as a church family, as a spiritual community through the letter of James. Would you strengthen us and build us up and bridge the gap between doctrines we profess to believe and the lives we live so that Christ would be glorified in us. May your word dwell richly in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.